Uh, we're all patients uh, at some time or another ourselves. I love this technology. There we go. So we're all patients ourselves at one time or another. And so uh, this applies to all of us. It applies to me. It applies to pharmacists who dispense. It applies to doctors who prescribe and, and so on. This is about all of us. So what I'm going to do is spend about the first half of the lecture talking about why there's a, a problem, why we don't all take our medicines. And then the second half, uh, I'm going to talk uh, about a, a solution, take you through some research. And it's a, um, a service which we developed at the School of Pharmacy and which has now gone into, uh, into policy and then there's a funded service in the NHS to help patients, to help us take our medicines uh, properly. Let's start by going back in time. So this is the Victorian Pharmacy, which I was fortunate enough to, uh, to present on, uh, on BBC Two. Uh, don't worry if you missed it, it's showing on yesterday channel at the moment. And of course, it's a marvelous Christmas present for a mere <laughs> 10.93 on Amazon at the moment. Uh, if only I got a share of the profits. And in this, uh, together with um, Ruth Goodman and Tom Quick, Tom was a PhD student studying history at the Wellcome, looking at Victorian physiology. Ruth, uh, um, a historian of, uh, of, of the domestic world, really. Um, and we, we recreated this Victorian pharmacy, and we, the storyline took us from the, the uh, early days of Victoria in the 1840s through to the, uh, through to the turn of the century. Enormous changes happened in that time. This is a period where, at the start of that time, the ideas of medicine were still those of Aristotle. We hadn't moved on a lot since then, and we are still applying Aristotelian theory. And it was a growth of science in this period, though. The uh, amount of uh, medical science publications doubled every 15 years um, and has continued to, uh, to do so. And so what happened in these days was there was very little prescribed uh, medicine. We used to make things ourselves. We, we did this in this wonderful um, uh, pharmacy, which is a genuine pharmacy, in Bliss Hill, which is uh, one of these museums, which is a living museum. It's actually a village near Telford. Fantastic place. You know, it must be a mile long, lots to, to see and do there. And we had a, a wonderful time working in this pharmacy, recreating the, the Victorian times. But the whole idea that something was prescribed and there was a right way to do things, I mean, of course, people said there was a right way to do it, but it wasn't most people's experience of life and medicines. Most people's experiences were that they treated themselves. And there was a lot of debate about what was the right thing to do. But since then, since the growth of science, we increasingly know more and more about what is the right thing to do. And one of the big issues, one of the most um, researched areas of, of, um, of medicine as a whole are drugs themselves. The randomized control trial first started to look by looking at drugs in, uh, in 1948. So what we have is increasingly more and more and more and more knowledge about what's right and wrong to do with medicines. And that means there are more and more and more rules about what's right and wrong. So this whole idea of non-adherence, although it's been around for centuries, is really quite critical now where we have a lot of information about exactly the right way to do things. Um, by the way, one of the things which people ask me, there'll hopefully be a few minutes for questions at the end, is uh, are you recognized in the, in the street as a result of doing this, this series? Uh, and the answer is no. Uh, I did wonder whether when the book came out, whether I would be recognized, but for some reason that didn't happen either. 
my mother, who was 90 at the time, went into the Smiths in Manchester and peeled all the labels off and put them down, <laughs> further lower down. Um, so we've got this fantastic technology. Every, you know, every uh, country in the world, every culture uses it. Uh, let's just look at the extent to which it's part of our society now. Let's look at expenditure on medicines in England. So Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland have different health systems. We're just talking England here, population about 50 million. We spent all that on medicines in 2010. That's 12.9 billion. What does that mean? Can you conceptualize a billion? I had to try and think of different ways to do this. So I thought, what if I, you know, given the debt that we're in, if I start paying for the 2010 drug bill now, it might help the government a bit. So I've got some pound coins here. And I just wondered how long it would take me when I'm paying them at about one pound a second. And if I keep doing this 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, just have a little think when you think I'd have paid off that debt. I'll give you a clue, it's in an October, so it's very symmetrical. Over 400 years it would take to, uh, to have an effect, to, to pay off that debt. So it gives you a different sense of a, of a billion. It's a hell of a lot, and 12.9 is. This year, probably drug spend will be in the order of, uh, of over 14 billion. I'll give you one more statistic to think about. What about the amount of dispensing that goes on? When you take a prescription to the pharmacy, say it has one item on it, aspirin, 75 milligrams, whatever, they dispense it. Uh, what about the amount of dispensing they'd have to do? Well, this year there will be about one billion prescribed items. So that's one drug uh, on a prescription as a, as a prescribed item. About a billion dispensed in primary care, so that's all the community pharmacies you can think of, the high street chemists, in a year in, um, in England. How long will that take to, uh, to do? Well, let's take a, a typical pharmacy. Uh, takes about two and a quarter minutes to, to um, dispense one item. They'll be open about 60 hours a week or so. So if we say, you know, your future is secure, all you need to do is, is dispense these billion items for, um, for the year of uh, 2012. How long will it take them? Well, it's taken them over 12,000 years to dispense that. So you get a sense, there's this vast amount of work, this vast amount of money, this vast enterprise around medicines. It really is uh, an enormous process that's, uh, that's going on. And so what do we do with this? Well, for patients taking medicines for long-term conditions, and that's most people who are, uh, who are taking medicines in, in primary care, um, do not take their, 30 to 50% do not take their medicine as, as prescribed, as instructions on the label, if you like, would say. Some of them are very sensible to do that. We'll come back to that. But that's the extent of it. Now, people immediately start thinking, well, is it because people are, are daft? Is it because they're old? Is it because uh, the condition is quite trivial? Uh, and the answer is those things don't really make much difference. You'll find this for renal transplant patients, You'll find it for patients with cancer. Uh, you'll find it for patients post-myocardial infarction. A whole range of areas. People don't take their medicine in the, in the way it's prescribed. And it's not to do with intelligence either. And 
age until near the end of life doesn't have that much difference. It's just the amount of medicines which, uh, which people take there. Um, and we call this non-adherence or non-compliance, but does it matter? Are we just being rather anal about this? We've done the science, here are the rules, you're not sticking to them, you know, how dare you? Well, it's thought that non-adherence counts for nearly half of all asthma deaths. Uh, for diabetic patients, increases the, the risk of death by 80%. If you don't adhere to your medication in the year following a heart attack, nearly fourfold increase of death. And figures from the USA uh, reckon it causes 125,000 deaths a year and accounts for at least 10% of hospital admissions. I think it's smaller in the UK in terms of hospital admissions, certainly, but uh, it just gives you a sense of scale in all this. So we've spent all this money, we've put in all this effort, we're using all these drugs which science have proven have worked, and yet lots of people aren't taking them. Uh, so what can we do about it? Well, if we look at the, at the world literature, as researchers do, we look at all the research which people have done, and we find that in, uh, the, there's very little evidence of what really seems to work. Um, most studies that there are make very simple assumptions. Uh, they assume that there's one reason why people aren't adherent and they try and do something about it. They're not adherent because they don't have the right information, so they put a leaflet in. They're not adherent because they didn't remember what the doctor said, and uh, so they have some process which, you know, rather like the English abroad, uh, their means of communication is just to speak louder and slower, you know. One tablet in the morning, dear. Take it with a cup of tea, it'll be good. And, you know, curiously, that doesn't have a major effect on, on people's medicine-taking behavior. So there's, there's a real pressure in society to have solutions rather than problems, obviously, and so the, um, but you need to find a sensible solution. So we need to find a way, uh, if we could find a way to improve adherence, then it would be more of a therapeutic advance than the development of a new drug because it would be working on so many people's lives and so many people's health. So, time for th some theory. We academics love theory. Why do we use theory, let's just say? And that is because we like theory framework models, things like this, because they help explain the complexity of real life, and they help us predict what's the right thing to do and what the future will be like. And obviously, that's a good thing to be able to do if we can. So, why don't people take their medicines? Broadly, as you'll have guessed from the title of the talk, uh, it's either because they choose not to uh, or they want to, but they can't. They're unintentional in, in some way. Our research suggests it's about half and half. Some other studies are similar. Some find a different proportion. But there's a fair amount of, of each represented. Um, so intentional non-adherence, um, it's driven by factors such as your, your beliefs about medicine, how you think it's going to work and what it's going to do, uh, and that will affect you. And I'll talk more about this, or both of these in a minute. And unintentional, actually we've shown that the people who have unintentional non-adherence have the same beliefs about the medicine, the same positivity about it as people who are taking it. They've just got some barrier in the way blocking them from taking it. And although I will keep talking, dichotomizing it like this as one side or the other, uh, the reality is there's overlap between the two. People who are less motivated are less likely to uh, remember to take their medicine, um, for example. But there are lots of other reasons why people can be unintentionally non-adherent besides their, uh, their memory. 
So I'm going to show you two theories. I think one of the great things is that at the School of Pharmacy in our uh, practice and policy department, uh, my friend and colleague Rob Horn is, um, has spent 20 years of work, which I'll show you a bit of in a minute, working on the intentional side and beliefs. More recently, I've been looking at the unintentional side, drawing on theory from different sorts of areas. So we've got both sides of it uh, represented. And um, So this is Rob Horn's necessity concerns framework, and he, I thank him for the slide which he, he provided. So a whole range of illnesses have been used in this. And as you can see, there's a sort of balance for all of us. Uh, if you doubt the necessity of a, of a medication, do you really need it? Then you're less likely to take it. And if you've got concerns about its potential effects, it might be the immediate side effect, or it might be the, um, that you're worried that it's, uh, you're going to become addicted to it, or that it might stop working if you're taking it all the time, every day in the same way. Um, then those things will both drive you to say, well, perhaps I'm not going to take it, or I'm not going to take it all the time. I might not take the full dose. I might take it for 11 months of the year and give myself a drug holiday for a month, various uh, things like that. And he's done this in a whole range of disease states, renal dialysis, HIV, hemophilia, renal transplant, asthma, cancer, and so on. And it's a very, very, very uh, enduring finding. Tremendous work over 20 years. And he's got a meta-analysis of the 44 studies coming out later this year. So this deals with the intentional side of things. It's not the whole picture, but it's a very good explanatory model. Let's look at unintentional. What I'm going to do there is take you through a lot of my work, as I said at the, at the start, and very cleverly illustrated with a microphone, I thought, uh, is, is around error. Um, and uh, so we have theories which, which try and explain this. And one of the common ones which is used in a lot of high-risk industries, such as aviation, is this one by Reason and uh, built on Rasmussen's. Reason, by the way, is a professor of, of psychology. What a great name to have as a professor of psychology, James Reason, a lovely man as well. So this work was delivered from uh, work studying accidents in factories particularly, and so there's questions about how well it fits the, the world of, uh, of you as individuals having choice about what you do with your medicines. But uh, let me take you through it, and then we'll talk about how well it fits medicines. So accidents can be caused by what are called active failures, and these are things which go on, if you like, in your head, in between your ears, as a, as a crude way of putting it. And these are slips and lapses where your brain knows the right thing to do, but accidentally does the wrong thing. It may be that, you know, sometimes you go home and you're tired and you get the wrong set of keys out to try and get into your house or something like this. Our brain has a lot of programs running in the background, and sometimes they don't work very well. Or you can have, and that's a slip, or you can have a lapse, in which case you know the right thing to do, um, but you get distracted. You go down to make a cup of tea, and the cat needs feeding, so you feed the cat, and you forget to make yourself a cup of tea. Um, those are slips and lapses. Mistakes are where people think they know the right thing to do, but they don't. Um, and then we have violations where people know what the right thing to do is, but decide not to do it. I'm sure this is a shock to you that human nature is like this, but for all of you who have driven at over 30 miles an hour in a 30 limit, or crossed the, uh, the lights when the pedestrian sign said red, um, you know, we all do it. We all make uh, these judgments where we decide we're not going to follow the rules. It's in our interests. It's a rational thing for us to do. These are driven by things such as uh, error-producing conditions. So that's what's going on around you at the time. It can be whatever people are doing, your family, technology, um, you know, events which are physically close to you at the time, 
uh, all sorts of things. And that, then there are sociological things very unhelpfully called in this theory latent conditions. Why don't we have more, I'm gonna focus on the active failures. Why don't we have more accidents? Well, it's because there are defenses which can be systems, they can be processes, they can be technologies, they can be professions. Pharmacy is fundamentally a, a defense against accidents around, um, around medicines. Why do we still have accidents then? Well, these defenses are um, imperfect. They're not great, they're not perfect. They have holes in them, if you like, and this is called the Swiss cheese model, as you, for reasons you can see. And slowly, if all those defenses fail just by chance, then you can get, so that's often when you get catastrophic accidents. Let me just illustrate some patient stories. Um, now, this is from uh, Lena Eliasson's PhD, uh, which she did with me. And this quote, it's a wonderful poison, was from one of the patients who was talking about their medicine. They hated taking it, but they knew it kept them alive. And so this wonderful poison, I think it's a fantastic name for medicines. And I often call them the wonderful poisons. This was patients taking imatinib, which as the um, trade name is Gleevec, for chronic myeloid leukemia. So this is keeping these people alive and maybe 10, 20 years treatment, it may actually cure them, we're not clear. It can have bad side effects, particularly with some patients, particularly nausea, vomiting, things like this. And this, a course of treatment is over 10,000 pounds a year, something like that, uh, per patient. And we interviewed, or she did, interviewed uh, adherent and non-adherent patients. So why were the adherent ones doing it? You know, how did they keep adherent? And what about the non-adherent? And then, then we ad uh, adapted reasons model to this. Let me just read you some of the quotes from some of the, the patients. Um, so here's a, here's a defense. Uh, here's a way in which they keep taking their medicine. They use their family. So this woman's talking about her children. She says, six o'clock every night, you know, the Simpsons are on. It's mum, take your tablet. We used to say six o'clock when the Simpsons are on. That's mummy's tablet. It makes mummy special. So really using the strength of the family there to improve adherence. I talked about our brains being, you know, running programs in the background, if you like, and failing sometimes. And we do a lot of things automatically. We can't reason over everything we do. We have to do this. But this can lead to non-adherence as well. Here's a couple of quotes. Um, so here's someone who's taking a matinib for some time. They said, earlier on, it was easier to adhere, to remember to take it. But later on, it does get difficult to remember because it's just routine. You're just on autopilot. You're not thinking that you're doing it. And another one said, I took them, and then half an hour later, I took them again. I had a mental block for some reason. It's just becomes such an unremarkable action, it's done and it hasn't registered in, um, in some way. We found new things which weren't in reasons framework, such as uh, fumbles, we call them, where people had dropped tablets. And uh, I just want to finish with, um, with two other examples. One was optimizing both violations. So these are where people know the right thing to do and choose to do the wrong thing. The first was the um, optimizing violations. Uh, and this is somebody who says, after all these years, your body tells you if you take Im imatinib now, you're going to be sick. No matter what happens, you're going to be sick. And so when I feel like that, I leave it out and take it the next day. And these patients talked about the fact they're taking several of their tablets. They're vomiting all those tablets back up together with the imatinib. And so clearly, it's not something which, um, which it's wise to do. So here is a rational process of deliberately not taking, not being adherent. Um, and then we have things which are slightly more on, on the edge. So what about, do you have a drink? So 
people find generally that they feel sicker if they're having alcohol and imatinib. So someone says, if I want to, to socialize and have a few alcoholic drinks, then I wouldn't take imatinib as well because they make me feel worse. So you've got to have a social life and engage, and they're choosing to, to trade those things off. And finally, uh, one of the ways people combat nausea is by having food with the, with the tablet. And someone's saying, if we've been out and we've come back later than expected, say 11 o'clock at night, I'm not about to go out and have a couple of rounds of sandwiches just to take the tablets. So it's, you know, it's not easy on their life to, to take this, uh, this properly because of the, the demands which the tablet makes on them in, in some ways. And that shows some of, the, you know, some of the judgments which there are about taking things all the time. And the odd tablet being missed doesn't matter in these cases. I just want to talk briefly about the violations. Um, this was at one time, this was sabotage, we, we called it. Here was a patient who looked onto the internet, found that imatinib was not available as a first-line drug, found out who the leading person in the world was, which was the, the group who had invented it at Hammersmith Hospital, and that they were doing a trial, found out the entry criteria for the trial, and then uh, it was that you had to have, as she says, funny levels. Well, basically, they were looking for people who had funny levels, up and down, up and down. My levels were not like that. So I didn't take the drugs I was taking at the time correctly. I took a lot one day, none the next day, none for a week, and then a few. So I knew my levels were going to be all over the place because that's the sort of people they were going, that were going into the trial. And it worked. She got into the trial. You may have judgments about whether that's right or not. And what she said at the end was, I'll tell you, she talks about picking up her first prescription. When I first got it, that first package of imatinib, I came to London to pick it up. It was like I had a piece of gold in my handbag. If somebody had nicked my handbag that day, they could have had everything, credit cards, money, anything. But I would have just asked them to give me the drug. And that's how I feel about it. To me, it's very, very special. I've got a good relationship with Gleevec. It's a good thing in my life, definitely. And here we have it almost becoming a person, becoming part of their life. And there are theories like actor network theory and sociology of technology, you know, which, which talk about the, the fact that technologies often uh, act in a, in a network almost as another person. So that's some examples of pe you know, using the theory and, and people, um, people's if, um, responding to them. So I'm going to whiz through, because I've spent too long on that, uh, some of this, the solutions and the development of a new medicine service. Basically, we're doing some original research. Uh, many years uh, ago, in the early 90s, we interviewed patients before and after they saw their GP. We tape recorded the consultation, and we uh, interviewed the GP a few days later as well. And we found that there are a whole series of, of issues, of things not being raised, but what came out at the end of it was that patients often came away unclear about things, thinking they hadn't been heard, thinking they hadn't been treated as a person rather than just a, uh, you know, a biomedical uh, body, because we can all be seen in different ways. You know, this can be Nick, who's 80 kilograms and has all these dysfunctional chemicals in him and is a, basically a sack of biochemicals, as we all are. Not a great chat-up line, but it's one way of seeing how we are. Um, or it can be Nick, the father, the, you know, the husband, the person who does this and that with his friends and has a social life and aims in the world and so on. And 
when you get this very biomedical, you know, Nick as a sack of chemicals consultation, people often go away unhappy, feeling they haven't been understood. And there's no attempt to try and integrate the drug into, into their life. Um, and I felt there's a lot of... Uh, Fiona Stevenson, a senior lecturer at UCL, was, uh, was doing this with us at the, the time. And I felt there were a lot of issues where we could have helped patients after they'd taken the drug. And so we went to see whether this was quite common, and we looked at 272 patients, and we talked to them 10 days after they got a new prescription. And two-thirds of them said they had problems, and one-third of them said they weren't taking the drug properly in the previous week. What other technology could get away with this? This was washing machines or cars or anything like that. People would be out of the market in no time. They wouldn't survive. And yet this is what we're doing with those billion prescribed items uh, that we have each year. So we designed a new service. And I'll just try and give you a brief idea of what the, what the service was. Uh, this is a quick version of it. So medicines are a technology. They're, they're used, you know, the use of science and to, to develop something which has use for, for society. So you've probably bought a new technology in the last few months, a new phone, a new camera, a new whatever else. I bought this camera a while ago. What I found was, you know, it came with a lovely manual, and I spent time looking at that and playing with it. But after a while, I got so far, and I just wanted someone to come and help me. You know what it is? You sort of, you can do the basics, but you just wonder, how could you do this, or could there be a better way to do that? You just want someone to come and put their arm around you and say, how are you getting on with it? You know, have you done this? You know, if you press that, it's a lot quicker and easier. You want to do what? Ah, oh, well, this is really easy. You press this, and they help you to use that technology. That's exactly what the new medicine service, which we devised, is about. There's a lot of theory behind it, which I'll, I'll whiz through, but it starts with the patient's view of the world and their life experiencing this new technology of medicine. Instead of trying to predict what's going to happen, because we never know what's going to happen with medicines. We don't know if they're going to work. We don't know what side effects you, as an individual, is going to have to that medicine if you've never had it before, because we're all very varied. So why don't we have a system whereby people in a safe way can experiment with the, with the medicine, whether they can operate the inhaler, whether they can swallow the big tablets, whether they, their child can bear the taste of the formulation. And let's see what happens. And then let's try and solve any problems which come up. And this is the new medicine service, grounded in the patient, theory-based, practical. Uh, the, the one we studied was uh, developed as used by telephone. Right at the, the right time, uh, and focused on priority groups. And this is what we found. We looked at 500 patients. They're split randomly. Those who got an intervention, uh, which was a, a phone call by a pharmacist. This was from pharmacies up and down the length and breadth of England uh, recruiting patients. And we had two pharmacists who made the phone calls at 10 days, um, a 12-minute phone call. That's all it took on average, a 12-minute phone call. Uh, led to patients being more positive about their medicines. They saw the necessity more. They saw less about their, their concerns. We didn't try to change those. That wasn't part of the protocol. All we did was saying, how are you getting on with your medicines? Do you think they're working? Are you suffering any side effects, do you think? Have you got any questions? Are you managing to take it OK, like it says on the label? No? Well, tell me what's going on, and we'll see if we can do something to, to help. Anything else you want to know? That was the interview schedule. And yet, just that in 12 minutes was changing people's beliefs. 
we got greater levels of adherence, we got fewer medicine-related problems, and it was cost-effective. This is a cost-effectiveness plane. Um, so if you look at the, the crosshairs in the middle, um, basically everything to the right is more effective than normal care. So the crosshairs where they meet is normal care, that's the control group. Everything to the right is more effective, and everything below that crosshair is cheaper. And this is a simulation of 1,000 patients going through the service. And you can see that for 80-odd percent of them, it was both cheaper and uh, more effective than normal care. Why did it work? It's because it was patient-centered. We listened to the patients and what they were saying. We listened to their account of, um, of life. And we, we solved their problems. We didn't say, this is what you've got to do. If you're on this, you must do this, that, and the other. We just said, tell us your problems. We'll do what we can to help. It was theoretically embedded, and we taught the theory to the pharmacists who are doing it, so they're able to make things work better. And, you know, <laughs> it sort of gets forgotten, but we are, as health professionals, supposed to be caring for people. And that's what this is. It's a form of caring, and people appreciate that. Excuse me. So, from that trial, we eventually got it into government policy, in 2008, eventually, uh, with the coalition, uh, coalition government coming in, they brought it into a, a funded service from, from pharmacies. Um, and it's targeted at the moment for, for drugs which are strongly associated with, um, with health problems or unnecessary hospital admissions. COPD is a sort of lung disease, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, anticoagulation drugs and so on. And what the service is, which your local pharmacy will, um, will probably offer you, uh, give them hell if they don't, um, is a patient-centered interview. So the, the patient will be, the pharmacist will meet with the patient normally face-to-face -face about two weeks after they've started the new drug, talk about the, the sorts of questions I asked before, say how things are getting on, come up with a plan together, uh, which may be go back to your doctor and tell them this, you know, this drug clearly doesn't suit you. And then there's a phone call at four weeks to see how has that gone on? Did it work okay? You know, is there anything else I can do? And that's the, um, that's the service. The uptake is about 45 to 50,000 patients a month. So it's been going for a year. It took a little time to kick off, but it, it, the uptake overall was very quick. It's been getting on for, certainly by the end of this year, I think we'll have had half a million patients through the service. And it's something which, you know, a great example, I think, of academia developing something uh, practical and realistic to be, to be put into to practice. We've had some great stories. Um, one is of a, of a patient who was taken into hospital because um, they weren't feeling very well. So the doctor said, as sometimes happens, well, perhaps it's your drug. We'll take you off all your drugs and see how you do. And so um, they felt a lot better. And the doctors felt they needed some of the drugs, though, so they discharged them from hospital with some medicines. But the patient said, I felt great without the drugs. I'm going to stay without the drugs. So they never took them. Kept getting their repeat prescription from the GP. Um, and then after a while, they had a stroke and went into hospital. And then they were um, treated in hospital, given some new drugs. Left the hospital, stopped taking the drugs, said, oh, I feel better again. I don't need the drugs. And then they had a follow-up uh, check with their GP who said, oh, your blood pressure is very high on these tablets. You know, I'll have to give you some stronger tablets. And so they got caught up in this new medicine service. 
And the pharmacist said, how are you getting on with your medicines? And they said, don't take them. Don't see the point. You know, I feel great without them. So the pharmacist said, well, you know, what was it like having a stroke? And uh, was that something you'd like to repeat? And, you know, <laughs> apparently they felt that that wasn't. And so explained that these were the causes and how things work. One of the things that there isn't time for doctors to do in the consultation is explain the rationale of this, why this is the right drug. And so in cases like that, you know, the, the patient became fully adherent. They really understood why it was, was there. Uh, we're beginning to pick up patients from discharge from hospitals, and it's currently being evaluated by, the, um, by people at, the, uh, at Nottingham University and ourselves and colleagues of mine. So my final slide, the sorts of things we're doing in this area at the moment, we're extending this plan into uh, long-term medicines with an internet pharmacy or co-funding a PhD. With the interaction center here, you click, we're looking at the concept of resilience. How can you make patients resilient so that they have methods, tricks, techniques to stop them forgetting or to make sure that they take things when they, they can and should? Um, if we're going to change things, you generally need to measure them, and we've developed a measurement, and uh, that's just been published in the last uh, month, and we're continuing work on validating that. And we're working on the mathematical modeling of your blood levels to your behavior with uh, mathematical modelers at, um, at UCL. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. We have three minutes for questions. Has anyone got a question? Up at the back there, there should be a mic coming through. To your left straight away. To your right. right. Um, thank you for the excellent talk. I remember when I did my law degree at UCL quite some time ago, and it wasn't like now where you learn jurisprudence and sort of easy stuff. It was learning every act by heart. And we had a doctor who tried to put us all on Mandrax to help sleep. And I know one or two people did go on it. And nobody came sort of a month later or two months later and said, how are you feeling? Oh, I can't wake up and all that. And now both those people have been seriously ill. And I think something like this could have just absolutely turned their life around. So it's very interesting to hear that. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's, uh, it's a great, uh, it's a sad anecdote, but it illustrates the point, I think, that we have, you know, it's not like surgery. We can't say, oh, we can't change that. Your appendix is gone. We can with medicine, so we need feedback loops, and they're not there. Yeah, uh, following up on that feedback, um, one of the reasons that addictive drugs and um, sort of recreational drugs are so addictive is, is the very fast response to you take the drug, you feel the effect. Yeah. Um, is that something that is a, a, a problem in medicines? Is it something that you could change in the medicines to yeah. make them have an effect quicker? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, one of the things which we know about uptake of technologies is if people think they're working and get some feedback quickly, then it's great and they, they're more likely to take them. Problem is a lot of drugs don't make you feel different, particularly preventative ones for blood pressure and so on. And in fact, someone was only suggesting to me the other day that we should just chocolate coat quite a lot of drugs. <laughs> 
Thank you for a very interesting talk. Uh, you just mentioned right at the end about including people who've been discharged from hospital. Mm. And I think that's really important because when somebody comes out of hospital, for example, for a detached retina operation, you know, they're quite sort of weak and they're given mm. very strong drugs and they associate them with the hospital, they don't associate them with that they could go to the GP yeah. for advice. And this is giving me the idea that actually they could go to the local pharmacy for advice on yep. them. Yeah, good point. It's a quick one. How did you measure patient's compliance in your trial? Um, it was self-reported. There's no gold standard for measuring compliance. It's an enormous problem. Uh, and, but we also measured their beliefs, and there were other things which we could measure which reinforced the self-reported non-adherence. Actually, mo most patients are happy to tell you because they either believe, if you, if you haven't prescribed to them, because either it's unintentional, in which case they're hacked off that they're not allowed to take them because they really want to, or they have a rationale for not taking them, and most patients are happy to share that with you. Thank you. And that was indeed a really great talk, and uh, thank you all for coming. And just before I ask you to uh, thank Nick one more time, um, there is a lecture starting here in five minutes, so if we could all uh, exit as quickly as we can. Thanks very much, Nick. Thank you.